This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It was kind of a pipe dream at first in trying to keep all of the talent with us as they moved place to place to place. But we realized some of the time we could if we allowed them to work from wherever they were. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. This podcast was recorded one day after the suicide attack at the Kabul airport that killed 13 U.S. troops and dozens of Afghans. The COVID-19 pandemic forced a lot of companies to reckon with large numbers of employees working remotely. The challenge now is getting people to return to the office. WWC Global, a management consulting firm that works with the Defense Department and other federal agencies, has more than 300 employees in 30-plus locations around the world. The operations team has worked remotely since the company's founding in 2004. I spoke with its founders, Dr. Lauren Weiner and Donna Honeycutt, about building a company with remote staff and about tapping into the underused talents of veterans and military spouses. Lauren and Donna, thank you so much for joining me here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start from the beginning. How did WWC Global come to be in Naples, Italy, of all places? Lauren, why don't we start with you? Both of us found ourselves, after having careers in our early 20s, through our late 20s, I guess, we found ourselves both on a military base in Naples, Italy, Donna had been a corporate lawyer with a Columbia Law degree. I had been in the White House, the Office of Management and Budget. And uh, we both found ourselves on military orders in Naples and found that it was not overwhelmingly common or even by policy really allowed for us to have higher level professional jobs on base. So we were not able to work the way that we wanted to work. We were not able to continue our careers. We found ourselves actually on a tour bus together and met because we both were desperately in need of coffee. So we met doing a coffee run and started becoming friends first. We ended up teaching both of us the the entire MBA program on ground, on base. And then we incorporated the firm really just to give us an opportunity to do some work back to the States. And somebody turned to us and said, hey, wait a second, I need some smart people who can do some policy level work for us. Can you do that? And so our first contract was awarded in 2000, end of 2005, and kind of took off from there. Donna? I'll sort of add the informal pieces. I hope Laura doesn't mind me saying uh, she applied for jobs that she was very qualified for, only to be told that while she's the leading candidate, she is young and newly married and going to have a child and not going to be professional much longer. I, on the other hand, was offered legal secretary positions after I'd been doing private equity deals uh, in a Wall Street environment. So we were we were a little out of our element and... The MBA program was interesting. Lauren has a doctorate in psychology and started by teaching organizational behavior. 
And I started by teaching contract law. Now in law school, I had taken a semester's worth of MBA classes when, you know, in the third year, you're allowed to do electives. And as a result, we were able to stay ahead of the class and teach the entire curriculum, as Lauren said. And now your company has grown. You have more than 300 employees. And what I find so unique and want to talk to you more about in this conversation is that you prioritized remote work for your staff and you tapped into the underused talents of military spouses and veterans. So working from home is not something that the rest of the world, per se, had wrapped its head around prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. But as I said, you were doing this long ago. So how did you decide to build a company with a remote workforce? Donna, you want to start? Honestly, it happened organically. What we really wanted was, uh, what I personally wanted was to build a company that would allow Lauren to stay in Naples and stay my friend because she kept saying, I can't get a decent job here and, and I'm going to go back to DC and, and just take an SES job. And I said, no, 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 I'll set up this company for you and you can consult going back. So that kind of happened organically. And then she was offered an opportunity by some very forward thinking Department of Defense employees to do some analytical work. And right when she started, I'd had a baby with colic. And I had uh, law firm loans, or I, excuse me, I had um, law school loans. And before she started, the customer said to her, hey, listen, I, I need another half-time person. Can you bring me someone? And she called me and said, you know, do you want to work? And I said, I will do anything you want me to do if you can pay me enough to get some babysitting. And that's basically how we started with the military spouses. I was married to a submarine officer, and the submarine officers, many of them are engineers, and the spouse pool of the submarine officers tended to be lawyers and MBAs and such. And so when we needed to hire on board some more people, we started with that pool and very quickly exhausted it. But I think what's critical to talk about here is that these were smart business decisions that benefited the company. They weren't charity. They weren't doing a good turn for our fellow spouses. They were oh my God, you know, you, you have a law degree from Harvard, come on board and you can make this, you know, spreadsheet for the customer. And uh, it was really about recognizing the undertapped talent pool that had always been there. And frankly, that had changed in nature substantially from 20 years earlier. Lauren, can you talk a bit more about just the logistics of managing a remote workforce kind of from the get-go? So this wasn't a thing back then, right? Nobody was doing this and we kind of did it because Donna PCS'd or moved back to Tampa just after we got the first contract. And, and so we started remote work literally within probably four months, five months of getting our first contract. And one of the things that we really cared about was being able to keep our talent as they moved around. And we talked about this from the outside. It was kind of a pipe dream at first in trying to keep all of the talent with us as they moved place to place to place. But we realized some of the time we could if we allowed them to work from wherever they were. And, and truly, we've had people, I just had my, uh, my vice president of business development moved from D.C., to Armenia and we're working through it. And you know, there are challenges to it, certainly, but it is well worth keeping that talent. 
we've found there are ways around hiring the right people. Um, there is not everyone that does remote work well, certainly. There are tools and, you know, Zoom is a great tool. It's not the only tool to get people engaged and to have that, that connection, that camaraderie still there. And then there are ways of really making sure that you're engaging because you don't get that water cooler talk, right? When you're, when you're not in an office, you can't just walk by, you can't just do a drive-by and understand what's going on and, and, and hear about it. So you have to be a little bit more thoughtful. You have to be a little bit more proactive about how you engage when you're remote, but in so doing, you get a lot of benefits, particularly in the morale, particularly in keeping the talent. And it's not just military spouses who have to move, uh, plenty of other people as well. But we've found that working around those issues, working around those problems that come up is well worth the retention of, of great talent. And frankly, it, it, it drives a loyalty to the firm that really does drive a lot of our success. Have you found yourself having to talk with some of your contemporaries who have not had your long-term experience with remote work now that COVID forced it on so many other companies? Yeah, no, we, we, we definitely did. We saw that certainly within the companies around Tampa, around DC, that were reaching out to us and saying, hey, you guys have done this forever. How do you do it? But one of the things that we found when the pandemic hit and everyone kind of moved quickly to remote work was we were able to help support our customers, our, our government clients who have never done this before. And also we were able to work really closely with our congressional delegation, for example, on what does this mean, right? How do we do this? And what do we need to do within the, the support system, within the legislative process to ensure that, for example, for government contracting, you're still able to work. And so we were able to kind of be that resource for not only the, the firms around here and the firms that know us, not only our customers, but also the political leadership who were trying to figure out how to manage this effectively. So that was really neat to be able to do that. Donna, you want to weigh in? I would say that this, I think, is a really great development for the government. Many places within the government and also in traditional industry are working on a, you know, that traditional manufacturing mindset of work means being in the office. And that is a manufacturing era kind of idea, especially for information work and especially for, you know, work that, that really does not necessarily require people to be in the same room together. Um, the government increasingly is competing with companies like Google and Amazon and literally uh, Amazon right in their backyard in Washington, D.C., that before the COVID era was causing commercial rents to skyrocket and also home prices to skyrocket. When you change the paradigm and you broaden your view, which is what I think Amazon and Google ironically even discovered late to the game, you get a much broader pool from which you can choose talent. Um, and that broader pool, I would argue, gives you tremendously more diversity. It breaks down the barriers uh, to entry to a lot of, of industries. You know, it's got a lot of pros and cons, and, and they're kind of divided into four buckets. You've got your practical, you know, you, you could have more continuity with work from home employees. 
you do have to sync hours if people are living in different places. You can get Zoom fatigue, and, and there's a question about whether that's more than regular meeting fatigue. And then I think the biggest practical challenge is the metrics for accountability of whether people are doing their job and doing it well. There are technical challenges. There's uh, cybersecurity for the government. I think above all, you need to make sure that if people are working from home, they have a secure system. And if they're doing anything on their home computer and their home devices, you need to make sure that that's consonant with the level of security that you want. You need to make sure that you're paying taxes for them in, in the right place. And that can get really messy with 50 different states and, and territories and all of their different rules about physical presence or not physical presence. Um, and, and licensure. So for example, if you're employing an attorney and in some states they can be employed remotely, and as long as they're employed remotely to a remote employer, they get taxed in that state. In other states, they're not even allowed to work if they're physically existing in the state. So, so you get into 50 plus different kinds of regulatory regimes. Financially, there are, on the one hand, you're saving money on office space, maybe, um, it's probably really important to still provide office space for meetings and such. And then you have state law developing in a lot of states that requires employers to pay people for their home office expenses, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. If people are paying for their own you know, ink and, and paper and air conditioning and, and whatever costs it takes to keep going at home. And then the cultural piece is the biggest piece. And, and I'll let you lead that conversation, but the, the cultural piece is, is enormous. It is a shift of a paradigm. It's got some challenges and it's got some great benefits. Mm -hmm. And I just want to quickly follow up before I shift the conversation to talking about specifically military spouses and veterans, but that cultural piece is so important. How do you handle that and make it a, a work environment where, where people really in, enjoy it and connect with their colleagues? Lauren? That's really critical. It is something that we have been working on for the, the entirety of the, the firm's history. And we are kind of fastidious and, and evangelical about our culture and inculcating our culture from the absolute first conversation that we have with employees throughout the entire life cycle um, and even through you know, the, the exit interview and conversations post-employment. You've got to really understand what your culture is. You've got to have people buy into whatever that culture is, whether or not they're in the office or not. And so it's, it's got to be really deliberate. We've made a, a huge effort in the firm to do that. We've got, you know, swag boxes that 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 matter to our employees. Our Yetis are, are kind of coveted swag, you know, but we've also got a, a culture statement We've got all the, the conversations that happen um, on kind of a virtual water cooler um, drive toward that culture. All of the, uh, we, we started having virtual happy hours when the pandemic hit, uh, which we should have been having well before that, but you know, because we had employees all over the world. And so getting them on the same you know, Teams or Zoom call um, to, to interact with each other actually was a great opportunity for us to, to kind of cross-pollinate across not only diverse contracts, but really diverse people. I mean, we've got, you know, senior retired military uh, on some of our contracts and junior, you know, employees in D.C. 
that are working, you know, so uh, State Department or, or USAID policy level stuff. So they're very different people and, and having them interact and really still gravitate toward that central culture that we've been able to cultivate across that diverse population is really critical. Well, let's talk about military spouses and veterans. You guys wrote an op-ed in Military Times, and I saw this uh, statistic from hiring, hiring Our Heroes that the military spouse unemployment rate had jumped to 38% as of March 2021. Your company helps address this by being available to hire people remotely uh, because so many spouses may start in one city and then three years later they're in another city, and, but they still need to have a job. So can you talk about um, tapping into this talent pool and, and kind of talk about the challenge you face, but also the benefits that you gain by, by focusing on hiring these two populations? Donna, do you want to start with that? Yeah. So, I mean, first I would say that these two populations, we are incredibly fortunate to be working with, I would say, and we're about 75% military spouses and military veterans, um, and particularly coming out of special forces and a lot of leadership positions. We have a lot of former officers in the different commands. So from the military spouse perspective, these are people that sort of by nature can handle anything by themselves, anything thrown their way, can cut through red tape generally have a, a really tremendous positive attitude towards getting things done. The, the flexibility and the ability to feel the unexpected um, is a tremendous asset within the military spouse community. And frankly, they, they self-select in. It's, it's forged because these are the people that are willing to marry into the kind of lifestyle that moves you around every two years and, and gives you unexpected orders and such. With our military veterans, of course, I mean, we have people that have done things none of us can imagine. None of us that haven't done them can imagine. People that have, you know, charted new territory in, in foreign countries that have, have saved lives, that have, uh, you know, MacGyvered their way through whatever challenges are thrown their way. And so the, the intellect, the flexibility, and the confidence that it takes to do that is something that we really benefit from when we engage uh, military veterans. You've covered the benefits, but, you know, are there challenges in, in hiring military spouses and veterans, particularly since the work is remote? I would say that the challenges that relate to hiring from these two labor pools are really the same as, as any challenges that relate to hiring work from home or hiring people that aren't in the same geographical location as, as the center of gravity of your operations. It's really important, as Lauren said, and she hit the nail on the head, to have a shared culture. And that shared culture at our firm starts with recruitment. We are very, very careful about using consistent terminology and consistent expectations management and consistent roadmaps to say, here's what you can expect if you come work with us. Um, and that's carried forward in all of our policies with the same terminology. Uh, in our practices, the practices are built around the same concepts uh, in the way that we measure people's performance. And um, again, Measuring performance is something that can be challenging when hiring a remote workforce. Now, some of the things that are challenging when hiring a remote, remote workforce are actually, you know, it's a two-sided coin. They're actually great things. So, for example, some people like the work-life balance. I, I can tell you that I'll speak for myself and, and Lauren. I probably save three hours a day because my commute is 45 seconds up to my home office and I don't need to put on the suit and go to work and, and have the meetings and be there when I'm not being productive and, and all of that. Ironically, rather than 
making people work less, it makes people work smarter, which I think is, is a great advantage. On the other hand, you do need to be very clear about what the company's expectations are when you're talking about work from home and what the metrics are by which they're going to be evaluated because it can no longer be hours in the chair. So some of, some of those things are you know, going to bring in a diversity of talents that maybe weren't there when you had a geographical center of gravity with a dominant culture, right? And you're always straddling the line between that dominant monoculture and certainly in each of our, our different labor pools, military spouses and military veterans, that takes us a certain form. And then the subcultures. When you are engaging remotely, there's a lot more room for the subcultures to come out. So for example, if you think of a traditional workplace that is, you know, where the, the lingua franca is sports. Did you see the game last night? Or, um, you know, going out drinking after work or whatnot. You know, these are dominant cultures, traditional dominant cultures. When you open up your workforce to be more of a polyculture, you get the benefit of, of insight from people like, uh, you know, single moms who can't go out after work and, and, you know, wouldn't have the same sort of platform as, you know, the people that traditionally stayed and, and went out drinking. At the same time, there's a loss for the more junior uh, professionals because they're not in the office seeing how the, how the more senior people are, are fielding things. They have to see that from Zoom meetings. So, you know, there's good and bad on, on these trade-offs, um, but I think ultimately uh, this, I think the nature of work entirely has changed and the nature of being present at work entirely has changed. And I think that these are actually developments that are good. Mm -hmm. Lauren, if I could ask you about uh, hiring uh, military spouses and veterans, what advice you would have for other companies? Because you're one company, but there are many other companies around the world, uh, not just around the U.S., who could potentially benefit from hiring uh, military spouses and veterans. So if I could ask you that question. Absolutely. And we get this question all the time. First of all, just how do we do it um, and why should we do it? And, and I think the, the biggest thing that I say to people is, is you need to be, first of all, doing it not because it's the patriotic thing to do, not because it's the charitable thing to do, but because it is the absolute business best thing to do. Uh, because, as Donna talked about, they are bringing a, a tenacity, a grit, um, an ability to break through gridlock to any workplace that they come into. So I have lots of conversations with veterans and military spouses about how to translate their uh, experience into kind of civilian speak. And we talk a lot about kind of what to say, what not to say when talking to civilians. It's the same thing for the, the civilians, really understanding what they're bringing, being able to kind of cut through some of the lingo, some of the jargon, or some of the, the ways that they spin the jargon to tr try to be civilian speak. So I see a lot of uh, kind of senior military leaders say that they were the CEO because they're trying to translate it and it doesn't always translate well. So really just trying to break through that and, and have a, a, an open conversation about what, what are you bringing to the table? What, you know, here's what I need. Can you do that kind of thing so that you can break past that kind of civilian military divide? But then recognizing also, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I have had with civilians who kind of confess to me hey, I'd really like to hire military, but but the PTSD is, is just, 
I, I don't know how I'm going to handle that. And, and I think it's really important to know that, yes, we have been at war for 20 years. Um, yes, there are challenges that most military families face for that, um, for that op tempo, for that, uh, the, the, the need to be deployed so often, but it is not all encompassing. It is not a challenge or hindrance for the vast, vast majority. They are good, good employees. Um, and there's not a huge difference in managing them over managing anyone else. Every, every employee has their own personal challenges. Every employee has their own personal home life that sometimes impacts their ability to, to do work. And, and military members, families, veterans are no different, but you know, they are uh, incredibly good employees. They are, tend to be incredibly loyal. And again, that, that grit, that tenacity, that ability to break through and get stuff done um, is something that I will take my military affiliated employees over anyone else uh, because of. Let me ask you, because this is Smart Women, Smart Power, uh, WWC Global is the largest woman-owned federal contracting firm headquartered in Tampa, Florida. Um, as two women starting a business, uh, you started your business in 2004, were there any hurdles that you faced that were speci- that were gender-specific, or did things go along swimmingly or, or, and not be a problem uh, for you in that regard? I'm fairly sure we could have an entire three or four podcasts and stories um, from what we what we saw in 2004. You know, sometimes what we still see today, but it has changed over the last 15, 20 years um, that we saw. We, you know, we, we saw a lot of questions about who military spouses in particular when we were first starting, who they were and what they could do. So there was a, a good story um from early on, I think probably 2006-ish, uh, we were looking to do, 2006-2007, we were looking to do work up in Stuttgart uh, at one of the commands up there, one of the four-star headquarters commands. And we got buy-in from everyone across the command, and they said, oh, you have to go talk to this this guy, this SES, the, the senior executive um, civilian who had been in the military about the concept that you're bringing, because we really think it's great. It, it's going to save a lot of money. It's going to be great for morale. And, and you've got a lot of people. I mean, we had a set of resumes that were phenomenal of military spouses on ground in Stuttgart with all sorts of professional backgrounds. Um, and we sat down with the SES um, and he said, oh, you don't have to go any further. I love hiring military spouses. They make great secretaries. All due respect, sir, they make a lot more, like they do make great secretaries. You're absolutely right. But there's a lot more diversity of experience than just secretaries. And he looked at us point blank and said, no, no, there are no military spouses at the professional level here in Stuttgart. Now, I want to be clear, this is two four-star headquarters commands. It's one of the only installations in the world that have two four-star headquarters commands, Tampa being another one. And there were senior leaders on that base who were married to senior spouses. Um, and they were remarkable. We literally, I, I, I joked at the time, 
I, ha I have a binder full of the, the resumes of women, mostly, who are remarkable, who are, you know, retired military, who are, uh, one of them was the, um, st the state attorney um, in Arkansas who had, who had taken down a, a mafia family in Arkansas, of all places. You know, there were remarkable spouses there, and he absolutely refused to believe that uh, that spouses could be anything more than than secretaries. So when we saw that, we saw again. I, we we've got stories that uh, could fill probably a, a podcast series, um, but we have seen it really change uh, over the years. I'm glad to hear it has changed because the things you just said, I'm you can't see me, but my mouth is kind of gaping open. I can't believe that in the 2000s, we are still hearing this kind of, I can't describe it any other way than stereotypical language about what a military spouse, a woman in particular, could do. Donna? Without getting too, too uh, deeply into the unsavory pieces of it, um, so first of all, I want to concur with Lauren that the good news story here is that this has changed dramatically. And frequently when we do see some of these viewpoints and behaviors, they're sort of very much from the old guard. As the military has evolved to include uh, troops with professional spouses and uh, you know troops that have professional daughters, uh, it did take that to, to change a lot of it, and it has changed, and it's great. But the reality is, is um, you know, there are some cultural things, certainly in the military, that kind of linger. So I would say back in 2004, 2005, I really never knew who I was sitting across from when I sat across a business table with a man, and they were always men from the government. And, and the reason is, is, you know, we had Fat Leonard next door in the next region over. That was going on prolifically. We had a sort of Navy culture about a woman in every port and the jokes that were made when sailors would go on leave. We had uh, oftentimes out outside of the United States a sort of pioneer mentality where, uh, you know, a lot of our competitor contractors took advantage of that. And so, there, you know, there were stories where um, I'm sure that some of the people we talked to when I found out later and had it confirmed, you know, in the evening we're looking at women as something to be gifted or purchased or looked at or or a faithful uh, keeping the home fire, which is another culture that the military promotes. And then I never quite knew what what they expected when they looked at me and saw a woman. And so the nice thing is, is you have a lot of underestimating going on and you can sort of carve out who you are by the way that you present. You know, but I, I we know for sure that in the early years we there's a lot of business that we didn't get because there were competitors that were playing by the old rules. Hmm. Well, I could talk to you both about this subject forever, but we're coming to the close of our time. And I do want to get in a final question uh, about, uh, uh, Lauren brought up, we've been in a, a, a war situation for 20 years, and, and everybody has seen what has happened in Afghanistan, and our hearts break for the U.S. troops and the military families affected by uh, what has happened in Afghanistan. I would be curious from both of you, how can we as listeners better support our troops and our fam and their families, not only during this time, but all the time? First and foremost, I want to, I want to acknowledge, you know, we're, 
we're one day out of the attack on the airport, um, and I want to acknowledge the the families that got the worst knock uh, possible on the on the door with all of the uh, service members uh, killed uh, in that attack and and all of the Afghans who were also killed. This has been a 20-year uh, period of war. Um, we have asked more of these families and these service members uh, than we really ever have before, and it's a very small group who are doing it. Again, they're not looking for charity. They're not looking for the the kind of de minimis thank you for your service. Uh, they're not looking for the the discounts at uh, at the restaurant. Um, they're looking, I think, really for understanding um, and for support of the sacrifices that they made. Again, not as charity, but as uh, a recognition that that their sacrifice did mean something. So that's I, I, a little bit esoteric. You know, uh, there are certainly plenty of ways that we can uh, recognize that. I I'm a big believer in making sure again that we're hiring them because of the the business case behind it, but really just recognizing the sacrifices that they're making. It's not that they signed up for this. Nobody signed up for 20 years of war. Um, nobody signed up for, you know, seven, nine, 11 deployments. And so recognizing that they have done this and that their sacrifice meant something. Mm-hmm. Donna? Well, uh, my heart is breaking for every service member, former service member, and and their families, particularly the Gold Star families who um, have lost family members to this effort in Afghanistan. Um, and I uh, I think it's very difficult for for our community right now. Um, I think we are all thinking back to, you know, not only the times when you know my husband couldn't be there for you know milestones in our early married life or, or for other people when, you know, the husband or the wife couldn't come back for the child's birthday, uh, you know, all the way to injuries suffered and, and lingering health problems to the worst case scenario, which is actually losing your active duty troop. And, and I think everyone's doing a lot of soul searching about, I really believed what I was doing. And, and we as a country spoke with, with a voice. Um, and I think that that is coming up against the realities of, you know, the limitations of government, the limitations of government that has um, changing priorities and has uh, changing leadership and an electorate that has changing priorities. And, and I think it should probably make us examine the next time we make a significant commitment, uh, how we manage that given that the external circumstances may change. And then also, I think we have a lot of allies in Afghanistan that that our troops and our former active duty members are very concerned about and, and concerned about their credibility going forward next time we're in a foreign place. Donna Honeycutt, Lauren Weiner, thank you so much for what has been a fascinating and very informative and terrific conversation. I really appreciate your being here. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's been wonderful. And thanks to all of you for listening. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 
the Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.